the second pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Donovan McNabb, quarterback, Syracuse University. Don't move. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the Boo Birds podcast. My name is Joe Greenwich. Joining me as always, the partially vaccinated John Sager. John, how are you? Doing good. I would say feeling much less tired than I was last Wednesday, but halfway there, looking forward to getting the other half done in a couple of weeks. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? How did the experience go? You know, it was it was fine. Uh, you know, I went in. It was sort of quick, easy. Got the got the shot. Uh, I might have pretty much rolled up my sleeve as I sat down, and uh, the person administering the vaccine said, "Oh, lo- looks like we're going to use your left arm." And you know, it was like, yeah, it just you know, couldn't couldn't get in there fast enough. And then <laughs> on my way out, the guy in front of me in line is going through multiple appointment times for his second shot. He's going, no, that's not going to work for me. That's not going to work for me. Nah, I can't do the morning that day. And then by the time it got to my turn, the uh, the person doing the scheduling asked, "Is you know, does the morning work for you? And I said, whenever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> First available is fine. And then, you know, and I scheduled for May 4th for those concerned. But it was just one of those couldn't get a more opposite scheduling experience where it's like, this life-saving vaccine, that day is not going to work for me. And then me going, <laughs> I will stay here for three weeks if that's possible. So do they give you a choice of which arm you get it in and you just chose left or? I, I, I sat down and went left. And my, by the way, I would suggest when it's your turn, the non-dominant hand because <laughs> it is sore for a couple of days. Okay. See, I have read some stories and uh, my sister is in the sciences. I'll just leave it at that. She shared with me some information that some folks who have tested positive for COVID are having adverse effects from the first shot, not the second shot. Everyone talks about how much they get waylaid by the second shot. So my concern is that I'm going to get knocked down by the first shot. So I've got to be very careful with when I schedule it. But now with eligibility being more widely open to everyone, I will be trying to book that sooner rather than later. So I can join the ranks of the artificially vaccinated as well, as opposed to the natural antibodies that I may or may not have floating through my system. But regardless, I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Glad to hear that everything went smoothly. That seems to be what everyone's saying that, you know, as difficult as the rollout process has been, once you get there, they've got it very much under control, very efficient, very quick and easy. And apparently with flexible scheduling that they could try to make any time work for you, even if, again, the life-saving vaccine doesn't. (laughs) Well, glad you're vaccinated, at least partially. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about here this week. Obviously, the Sixers and the Phillies are on front of mind right now. Whether you like it or not, I think we're going to talk about the European Super League that's being discussed this weekend. I think you're going to talk about the European Super League. (laughs) All right. I will talk about the Super League. But first, John, what else is in the news this week? Well, busy week in baseball. Joey Votto logged an unassisted triple play. 
Carlos Rodon of the Chicago White Sox tossed a no-hitter. The 20th in White Sox history was almost a perfect game. He plunked Roberto Perez with one out in the ninth inning. Per Padres reporter AJ Casavell, only four guys in 120 years of MLB history had been just one hits batsman away from a perfect game. He and Joe Musgrove both did it in a five-day period. Umpire Joe West, probably not going to be a friend of the pod, won a $500,000 <laughs> defamation suit against former big leaguer Paul LaDuca. This is in response to an interview LaDuca gave where he fabricated a story that Joe West rigged the strike zone against the Phillies in favor of Mets pitcher Billy Wagner. Allegedly fabricated. Unrelated, or possibly related, this is the 30th anniversary of Andre Dawson writing Donation for the Blind on his check when he was ejected from a game umpired by Joe West. Phillies outfielder Adam Hazley has left the team for personal reasons. He has been placed on the restricted list indefinitely. 2016 number one overall pick, Mickey Moniak, has been called up in his place. Eagles players released a statement through the NFLPA saying that they will not be attending in-person voluntary workouts this year. They joined the Giants, Bucks, and Steelers as organizations skipping workouts due to the pandemic. And apparently there's a Super League forming in Europe, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And that's the news. Hey, Joe, what are we drinking tonight? Well, you started the idea of the Bluebirds podcast taste test, right? Sure. I... Can't quite remember the the exact origin, but yeah, sure, we'll go with me. It being... was coffee whiskey, is what it was. It was coffee whiskey. I did what all of the the greats do, and I just completely stole your idea. In the last couple of weeks, I've been testing other beverages, and I thought, what would be better than you doing a taste test or me doing a taste test? What about us both doing a taste test? Last week, I gave you a special gift. I put a beverage in a brown paper bag so that it looked as classy as possible. Taped it up, added some security measures. Scotch tape. Said, Do not Scotch open. Tape. Other security measures may be involved. There aren't. Told you, do not open it until we record. Now that we're here, John, I would like you to please show me the bag. I would like to see proof that it has not been tampered with. See the bag? That looks like my handwriting. All right. Okay. John, I want you to open the bag. And reveal what we are taste testing tonight, live on the air. There are additional security oh, yes, there measures. Are additional security measures. I forgot about the foil. <laughs> In the form of tin foil, which is, might I add, well wrapped. Very good oh, job. Oh, I, I, I spared no expense. What, like a dollar? Hey, it was whatever was in the drawer. <laughs> Ooh. Ladies and gentlemen, what John is revealing to himself right now is Pabst Blue Ribbon Hard Coffee. Speechless. Are you looking for a stimulant? Are you looking for a depressant? Why choose? And you know when it's got the PBR brand on it, you know it's classy. I am, I've uh... seen hard coffee in stores for a long time, and I've never had the guts to try it. But I figured, you know what? Why don't I do it? And why don't I bring you down with me? So tonight, we're going to try Pabst Blue Ribbon Hard Coffee. This is the original version. I believe they have like a cold brew. There may be flavors, but let's just start with the basics, all right? I'm going to crack this baby open. I should have brought a glass and done it really classily, but instead, I have the can. 
So if you could open your can and we can. Uh... I, I, for the record, before I open this, I just want to say speechless. <laughs> All right. So I do have a glass next to me. I will pour this out for our video feed. Uh, you, you, you can pour it into the glass. I'm going to drink it right out of the can. This is a uh, coffee color. Looks like coffee. Well, that's good. Be... I, can't, I can't see it. And that's maybe, maybe for the best that I couldn't see it. Well, I would say this is work friendly. This is a work friendly <laughs> beverage because it looks just yeah, like coffee. Especially if you're on a Zoom call. Um, what's your first thought when you smell it? Because I had one that, that is probably not what they were going for. Again. I would say this smells exactly like coffee and uh, PBR. See, I got, <laughs> I got vanilla extract. Like it smelled at first like vanilla extract to me. Maybe well, mixed with a little coffee. What is a PBR taste tester? Is that a sommelier? Is that somebody from Delco? Is that <laughs> a hipster? I don't really think. I think part of the thing of PBR is that they probably don't taste test it. That That's probably part of the appeal. Is you just don't know what you're going to get. So it, I don't it, think it, we're going to get PBR as a sponsor, John. <laughs> is this a, right. a bottoms up or bottoms always down um, situation? I think uh, I think I think it's time to, to give it a try. All right. right. Cheers. Cheers. Let's see, cheers. see how this goes. Not bad. I mean, it's not great. <laughs> At first, I got a, a hint of of Yoohoo, to be honest with you. It tasted like Yoohoo to me. But then it tasted like, you know how if you, if you have a beer out at the bar? Remember when we used to go to bars and, and, and drink beer and all? A what? When you don't finish the beer and there's a little bit left in, in the, the bottom and it sits there and it seems like the alcohol content goes up, you know, three or four fold. And then you just, oh, it's time to leave. You just drink it real quick and it's never good. I then got that taste. So I got Yoohoo followed by if an alcoholic you who had been left out for an hour and then I just finished it before I left. That is a really unflattering description. Um, it's not the worst thing I've ever had. John, what, what your first impression seemed like you, you liked it, but how, uh, how would you, how would you describe it? Well, since last week we talked about replay a lot, uh, upon further review, eh? that's a real uh, resounding endorsement slash non-endorsement. I mean, it's PBR related, so eh is probably, you know, that's high praise. I got to say, if I liked it more, it would, it would be pretty dangerous. Like, in our current climate, I feel like everybody seems to be drinking more coffee and caffeine just to get through. And people seem to be drinking more alcohol just to get through. Putting the two together would be a dangerous combination, and I'm glad that I'm not blown away by it. Because what is the market for this? Like, what are you what are you trying to do? Like, are you are you trying to pick yourself up with coffee, or are you trying to chill out with some booze? Like, like I made a joke about it, but honestly, what are you trying to do if you're drinking a can of Pabst Blue Ribbon hard coffee? I believe that would be the podcast host's market, and <laughs> perhaps that's it. You know what? I I think we could, we could say this might be the only time. This is consumed on the pod. Well, John, I will say it did come in a four pack. So oh, wonderful. Um, <laughs> something's going to need to be done about those other two. I don't know what it is. Get your but, day hey, started I mean, right. I've still got, I've still got plenty left. So we'll see how it goes over the course of the rest of the pod. And uh, 
Maybe I'll have come around on it. I will give a follow-up to a previous review. Uh, two weeks ago, I tried lemon tea hard seltzer from Truly. Had one about a week ago. Much better experience. Because I think because I knew what I was getting into, and I, I wasn't trying to like describe it to anyone. I just drank it, and it was fine. So, again, a delayed approval for Truly on the lemon tea hard seltzer. I'm not sure I will have the same feeling about hard coffee. I'm concerned by the concept, less the brand. You know what I mean? I will say the longer this pandemic continues, there is a chance that if I have this and Cocoa Pops together, that this could be a dangerous type of chocolatey <laughs> breakfast cereal. Yeah, I definitely get that chocolate breakfast cereal milk milk flavor sense to it. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. Hmm. And that was What Are You Drinking? Brought to you this week by... Paps Blue Ribbon Hard Coffee. Why? Because. Since we last recorded the Sixers, having a pretty good week. They beat the Clippers. They beat the Nets. Both teams with a winning record that is 20 games over 500. It's the first time since 1983 and then also 1967 that a Sixers team has defeated teams with those records in consecutive games, I have to say, if you're a what Sixers fan, what happened in those years? That's that. Hmm. You know, that might be a sign. That might be a sign. Hmm. What happened in 1967 and 1983? Well, considering Sixers highlights have been so few and far between, I think <laughs> everyone listening can probably, you know, fill in the blank on that. If you're from the Philadelphia area. I have to say I was impressed with the way they survived both games. I think this is probably the worst part of the NBA schedule historically. And, you know, this isn't the return to normalcy that I was looking for. But this always seems to happen every year with the NBA. Now, perhaps this is because baseball is on TV and, you know, my attention seems to naturally drift that way. But it seems like the NBA teams, you know, the first month or two, they – really try to figure out who they are and, and get through it. And by the time you get to this point of the year, it's all about the playoffs and you're just trying to get healthy for the playoffs. Guys are resting. Just look at the nets. You know, guys are starting to talk about postseason awards. Look at anything that Ben Simmons has talked about with defensive player of the year in the last couple of weeks. You know, we have that going on and it, you know, it's, it's not the most exciting part of the year, but you can't argue with a win against two teams of that caliber. Joel Embiid playing well. And, you know, that's that's a good sign considering he's bouncing back from his injury. You know, to me, he doesn't look like he's still moving at, at 100%, but he's still playing pretty well. It's probably the brace at anything at this point. But, you know, as is the case every time this year, I'm just looking forward, forward to the playoffs. Yeah, this is normally the time in the calendar when, you know, the playoff – race has, has reached its pinnacle and teams have like one or two games left and next weekend is when the playoffs would start so to still be in the regular season for a little bit that's that's kind of weird I, I think the biggest thing to happen to the Sixers in the last week those wins are nice but LaMarcus Aldridge's retirement could could loom very large he was a, a nice addition for the Nets he he was starting for them when he first got there but I don't think that was the role he was going to have moving forward, but there's a bigger guy who 
is another body to put on the floor to contend in some way with Joel Embiid. And now he is retired for health reasons. So we wish him all the best. There is some discussion in NBA fan circles as unfortunately there is whenever someone retires for whatever reason is LaMarcus Aldridge a hall of famer. I'm not going to weigh in on that. I'll be honest. I haven't followed his career all that closely, but the reality is he's a guy who still had some basketball in him, but he, he had a, an irregular heartbeat at various times throughout his career. And he really was struck by it. I believe earlier this week or earlier last week, I should say. And he abruptly retired. And I think that is the biggest thing to happen to the Sixers since we last spoke, to be honest with you. Right. And whatever you think about Aldridge and Blake Griffin, they aren't who they used to be, but they're still pretty good guys to have coming up off your bench. So him no longer being with the team is significant. I think any team would love to have a veteran of his ilk. I'll say this, I'll weigh in on the Hall of Fame discussion a little bit. I, I don't think he's quite there, but he's still in the conversation. So that means if you have a guy like that on your team, you know, perhaps like an Andre Iguodala, that like that kind of guy where they're kind of hovering around the conversation, you don't want to face somebody like that in the playoffs, especially when you're the Sixers and you have a younger bench. Let me ask you a question, John. Suppose LaMarcus Aldridge had the exact same career, except he and Chris Bosh switched places, and Aldridge was in Miami with LeBron and Dwayne Wade, and he won a couple of titles. Would you put him in the Hall of Fame? It's so hard to say. I'm. The answer is probably yes. Well, then you think he's a Hall of Famer. The idea that we're going to judge a guy's career based on who he played with and like whether or not he won a title, like I feel like we're moving away from that. I hope we move away from that. But I feel like if you would have put him in had he won a ring or two, then you should put him in without one. My hesitancy is in part due to how the NBA does Hall of Famers where it seems like just about anyone who's close enough eventually gets in. So I, I think that kind of kind of factored in. I'm with you. I think he's he's probably the level below, which is no slam on, on him. They always call it the Hall of Very, Very Good. Right. So he's in that. And, you know, I think anyone would have loved to see him play for the Sixers at any point, you know, over the last, you know, decade plus. But you're right. It, it is one of those situations where with basketball, and we've seen with Golden State where Draymond Green – is a heck of a lot better when Steph Curry is on the floor. So when you have, you know, the elites around you, it's it's a lot easier to be a better basketball player. When you have no doubt Hall of Famers on your team, you look a lot more like a Hall of Famer yourself. Look, LeBron James and I could probably average 35 points a game. Together. <laughs> Between the two of us. <laughs> uh, I, I think I may have overstated it when I said the most important thing for the Sixers because – the, the biggest effect of that win over the Nets was the Sixers won the season series, which means should the two teams end up tied for first or second if Milwaukee makes a run, then the Sixers will have home court advantage over the Nets. And as we've learned for the Sixers, home court advantage means so much. But they also haven't faced the Nets in their current iteration. You know, Kevin Durant was out. You know, I don't think Kyrie Irving played. One of the games. Right. It, it was hard to feel really good about that win. Right. Especially the fact that they were up by 20 and then you turn around and, and it's a just a couple of possession game. 
Right. That was definitely the game where you're, you're constantly going, I could turn it off now, right? No, wait, I'll, I'll wait another yeah. minute. No, I could turn <laughs> it off now, right? And then it's... I'm when you s- probably would have been better off just turning it off at 20 and then just seeing that they won the game. Probably not. Unlike the Phillies bullpen last year, I think, I think it would have been better if I just turned it off every <laughs> game off in the sixth inning. I would have wondered why they didn't make the playoffs. The Sixers now a couple games up in the Eastern Conference. Not too much time left in the regular season. Take off your Sixers fan glasses. Out of what you've seen of them at their full composition, what you've seen of the other teams, are they a legit finals contender? They're definitely in the conversation. I, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Whether they actually get it done in the playoffs, you know, this is probably the make it or break it year for Ben Simmons. I, I think in terms of him being able to get away with the the no jump shot because he's already been on, you know, very, very thin ice with that, with his claim to being an all-star. He switched gears this year to where he just doubled down on, I'm going to be the best defensive player in the NBA, which good on him, but we'll see how it affects things in the fourth quarter of the NBA playoffs because it's an entirely different animal than the than the regular season. The NBA regular season is probably the most mediocre of the major four sports. The NBA playoffs, not so much. It's one of the, you know, I guess it's at least as exciting, if not, you know, more exciting than anything else. And teams play at an entirely different intensity level. So how he reacts in that situation when, when teams really, you know, strategize around spacing for him, that's going to be very interesting to see. It's interesting. Uh, you, you snuck a point in there that I kind of disagree with. I think that the NHL regular season is, I don't, I don't say the most meaningless, but it, it carries less intensity to me. It It is probably the most meaningless because more than any other sport, the bottom seed can knock off the top seed. Right. And nobody says anything about it. Whereas if that happened in the NBA, which I think it's only happened once, if, if I'm not mistaken, that the eighth seed has beaten a one. And, it, you know, that would be a huge deal. You know, baseball, the weirdness of pitching, you know, can can change a series quickly. The NHL, to your point, is just they probably have the best postseason of the four sports especially because you could have seven games of fights. And then as soon as the final horn blows, it's all right, we got to shake hands like gentlemen. <laughs> uh, the eight seed has beaten the one seed at least three times that I can think of. The Denver Nuggets famously did it um, four times. The Warriors did it when they knocked off the Mavs the year after Dallas won the title. We had the, the Knicks, I believe did it that year. They went to the finals. I believe they were the eight seed. I could be wrong, but 2012, you're Philadelphia 76ers. The eighth seed knocked off the top seed of Bulls. I was at that game. I believe the Sixers were the eighth seed that year. And I believe that was the uncut gem Sixers. So before we <laughs> dive into that disaster, you know, maybe we should move on uh, to another league. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, I think that was the year because it was the year that Derrick Rose tore his ACL in game one. Yeah. I believe the Sixers were the eighth seed. If we're wrong, you know, we could just look it up. We're not going to edit it. Listeners, you tell us. Send us your your nasty tweets and your DMs if we're wrong. But I'm pretty sure the Sixers were the eighth seed. But you wanted to talk about another league. Well, You've been for, dreading first of all, this. if we did do research, we probably wouldn't be drinking PBR hard coffee right now. <laughs> well, I don't know if you are because I haven't seen the glass since we did the segment. I am trying to get through it. And uh, the second half of the show might get a little loose. I'll, I'll give you that. 
But you wanted to talk about another league, and I think you've been dreading recording this episode ever since the news broke about the European Super League. So, John, if you want to go make yourself a sandwich, <laughs> go get some ice, reload with some more PBR, now would be the time. The European Super League is a sort of a breakaway soccer league that has been founded, I guess you can say. They, they've finally gone through with it. They've talked about it for years. There are 12 clubs. In England, you have Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Manchester City, Tottenham, and Liverpool. You've got Juventus, Inter Milan, and AC Milan in Italy, and Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico Madrid in Spain. These 12 clubs, plus they have saved room for three more quote-unquote founding clubs. I can tell you right now, they're going to be targeting PSG in France, Bayern Munich in Germany, and probably Borussia Dortmund in Germany. They want to basically smother the Champions League in its bed. We talked last week, well, again, I talked last week during the soccer minute about the union playing in the CONCACAF Champions League and how it wasn't quite the Champions League that everyone cared about, the European one. The European Champions League is the most lucrative club soccer competition in the world, which makes it the most lucrative soccer competition in the world. And the amount of money involved for those clubs that that make it to and play deep in the Champions League is just otherworldly. There's a reason that these clubs remain big clubs. It just perpetuates itself through the money, and the Champions League is a big part of it. For the most part, the Champions League is merit-based. If you win your top flight in your country, you go to the Champions League. So the champions of England, the champions of Spain, the champions of Germany, but also the champions of Liechtenstein and Poland and Switzerland and Norway, all of the members of UEFA, they will send at least one club to the Champions League. The bigger countries that have performed better in the past will send more. So England sends four teams. Spain sends four teams. Germany sends four teams. Other countries send three or two or one. The competition starts over the summer, and it winds its way through a couple of different phases into a group stage. Right now, they've reached the semifinals. Only the top four teams in England make it to the Champions League next year. And we'll talk about England because I know a little bit more about English football than the others. In the past, we talked about the big four clubs. It was Man United, Arsenal, Liverpool, and Chelsea. They didn't have to worry about falling out of the top four because they were the big four clubs. Well, now, Man City has gotten involved. Tottenham has improved. You see an outlier, Leicester, five years ago. West Ham's up there now. These clubs position as... as being the hegemons of England and, and going to play in Europe every year has been threatened. So the idea now is that these founding clubs, instead of playing in the Champions League, will play in the Super League, which will be constructed in a certain way that's very similar to the Champions League. And these 12 clubs, plus the three founding clubs yet to be named, will be joined by five rotating other clubs who would theoretically qualify based on their domestic play. Those 15 clubs will always be in the Super League. They will never, ever not qualify for what they are hoping is a very lucrative club competition. All right? Therein lies the big issue. Why everyone is, is so up in arms about why this is so bad. 
there is no open competition. You know, yeah, there's five spots saved for some sort of mechanism that has yet to be outlined. But these 15 clubs will never have to worry about where they finish in their domestic league affecting their bottom line like they do now with the Champions League. All right? It is so anti-competitive, anti-democratic, anti-anything good you can think of. It is strictly and purely greed-based. Okay? It is protecting these traditionally big clubs from actually having to succeed on the field. All right. I may or may not have railed about the financial fair play thing that UEFA put into place a number of years ago. Financial fair play came about for the same reason. Those rules say that you can't spend more money on players than you bring in in revenue. A wealthy owner or city state or oil magnate, various different types of entities that purchase clubs these days, they can't just buy a club and infuse it with their own cash. Right. They can't just say, all right, here's a a one billion dollar check. Go sign me Ronaldo and Messi and throw in Kevin De Bruyne while you're at it. They, They can't do that because they're not bringing that money in in revenue. The idea is that the clubs that were already established, like Manchester United, like Real Madrid, like Barcelona, the the biggest sporting entities on the planet. They have these long histories, these histories of success. Manchester United is the most popular football club in Asia and has been for a long time. Do you know what fans do? They buy jerseys. They buy tickets and go to matches. All of that revenue comes into the club, and they're then allowed to spend that on players based on UEFA's financial fair play. You know who doesn't have that background? Manchester City. Manchester City was purchased by the wealthy former prime minister of Thailand, then was purchased by even wealthier oil shakes, and now they've become one of the biggest clubs in the world through sponsorship deals. A very good academy, don't don't forget. They're very good at developing players. But this financial fair play thing was basically put in to prevent clubs from joining that upper echelon, right? You had to basically have this revenue stream as a foundation already before you could ever try to compete on that level. And it was impossible. So City ran afoul allegedly of some of this stuff. And and it was something when people asked me about, like, well, how do you feel about, you know, are they cheating? And it's like, well, no, the thing that they're alleged to have, have broken is invalid to me anyway, because it was created simply to protect the cartel of clubs that already was big. So that was kind of a BS concept. The Super League is is just as BS a concept. One of the clubs you mentioned being involved is your own beloved Manchester City. Yes. How does this make you feel as a fan of the sport in general, and more specifically, one of the clubs involved in this effort? Side note, I'm very eager to hear how you contort yourself to justify your club being involved. <laughs> Um, I, I can justify it. The reality is that if this gets off the ground, the Champions League is dead. Okay? I await your jersey order. <laughs> Get the little Super League patch. Um, if this gets off the ground, the Champions League, I, I don't think it will die right away. I believe that the secondary competition, the Europa League, will fizzle out. But the Champions League will still exist in some form for a little while, probably because of television contracts. And then it will become a shell of its former self which means that the money you get is very much lessened. The luster of the competition is dulled. Now, if you want to compete at home, if you're Man City or any other English club, 
if Man United and Liverpool and Tottenham and Chelsea and Arsenal are still bringing in Champions League type money, it's going to be tough to compete with that within the confines of the aforementioned BS financial fair play rules. So you're kind of in a tough spot where if you get invited to this league and it's actually happening, you're, you're doing your club a disservice not joining up and signing up for the cash cow. As a fan, I think it just comes down to why do you watch in the first place? Do you watch to be entertained and then turn it off? That, that's how I feel about like when I watch playoff games and my team's not involved, I turn it on because I'm interested to know what happens. Something great might happen. I want to be entertained. And then I turn it off. But when your club is involved, when your team is involved, you're invested. And you feel a bond to that team. It becomes more than laundry to you. Nobody wants their team to go out and work around the rules, to, to, to game the system in order to get a leg up on everybody else. Nobody openly wants to say that, yeah, I want my team to be in the Super League because I want them to be in the Super League. I would much rather them not be in the Super League and figure out a way to compete that way. It's the unfortunate reality of, of sports in general, but soccer in particular in Europe, where as if it doesn't anywhere else than anything else, money literally rules everything. And if you don't have the cash to compete, you won't compete. What, what Lester did a few years ago, you could go decades without seeing again. Unfortunately, if this gets off the ground, City have to be involved. If they were invited, I don't know if they were one of the driving forces. It's funny to me to see that after financial fair play was put in to stop a City or a PSG from elevating itself to that same level, that now City is being welcomed into the fold and being treated as part of the quote-unquote big six. It's like, all right, well, we couldn't beat you. We're going to let you join us. I do have one more question for you. I, when I first read about this, this is my first thought. How does this differ at all from the NCAA and specifically the ACC conference? When we had that reshuffling a couple of years ago, where all of a sudden the Big East and the ACC are kind of one and the same, or most of the powerhouse schools are all in the same conference where, you know, where they're all going to be in the tournament and they're all in this giant revenue stream. And, you know, there are smaller schools involved, not on like the teams that are being, you know, asked to join that small rotation. You know, it seems like very much the same concept. And, I have to say, I didn't like when the ACC formed that super conference because I loved the old Big East. That was, you know, the conference to watch. Big East Mondays on, you know, on ESPN, there was always something to that. But then, you know, now it's not the same. Like Syracuse and Duke being in the same conference quite quite isn't the same thing. You're a Georgetown guy. How do you feel about that? It's not quite the same from the standpoint that these teams will not be leaving their domestic league. They will still be playing in the Premier League on Saturday or in La Liga or in the Bundesliga or in Serie A or Ligue 1 if a French team were to join. These teams will still be playing domestic football. It's just that on Tuesdays and Wednesdays when you turn on, not to give an ad, but right now Paramount Plus and you watch the Champions League, 
they won't be in the Champions League anymore. They will have a deal with someone else to air the Super League. And it's a secondary competition, but it's one that makes more money than the domestic competition. So this would be like if those Power Five schools, as has often been discussed, broke away and formed their own organization. Then you're looking at something a little more akin to what you're seeing here, except for the fact that what's happening here is not in the primary competition. It's in the secondary competition. But it's the one that everyone aspires to play in. So I can get you a gift subscription to Paramount Plus, and that's going to work this year for Christmas. That's what you're saying. John, I already have one. I told you, City plays on there. Of course I already have one. Come on. Don't, don't, don't question my fanhood, my supporter credentials. I'm, I'm a little wounded right now that they're involved in this, but I, when, when I first heard about it, you know, it was the sources say, and then all of a sudden some of the clubs announced it. And I, I was just like, I really hope City isn't one of them. And then I was like, City's got to be one of them or else they're going to get left behind. So I was both reassured and disappointed to see them involved in the effort. But keep an eye on it. UEFA announced a, a revised format for the Champions League. Honestly, I think it's to try to expand it, to get more clubs into it. It's not going to be smaller clubs that, that get in, right? Like when the NCAA tournament field expands all the time, it's not smaller schools that get in. It's to get more big schools in. So I, I don't know if that change in the Champions League is going to ameliorate things. There's talk of banning the players who play for these clubs from international competition. There, there's talk of kicking City and Chelsea and Real Madrid out of the Champions League this year. That's three of the four semifinalists. They're, they're talking about just kicking them out this week. So by the time we, we pod next week, something may have happened on that front. And I'll try to keep it to one minute if, uh, if it does. But definitely keep an eye on it, not just if you're a soccer fan, but this could remake a lot of sports and give a lot of sports leagues and movers and shakers ideas that, as fans, I don't think we want them to have. And with that, John, I think we're going to take a break. I'm going to enjoy a little bit more of my PBR hard coffee. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the Phillies, and then you've got some beef. Last week, I brought some fresh beef right out of the gate. You told me you've got some beef that has been sitting for years. We call it finely aged beef, but we're going we're gonna to take a bite out of that and see what you've got for us when we come back here on the Boo Birds Podcast. Stick around. We're back here on the Boo Birds podcast. Before the break, we said we're going to talk about the Phillies. Whoa, 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 they... whoa, whoa, whoa. What, John? Wait, no, 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 no. Th what? This is the time to exorcise the aforementioned beef. In you the just can't wait, can you? <laughs> no, I, I cannot wait. No. All right, well, John said he's got some beef that, that's been stewing for 30 years. Possibly longer. Possibly, Possibly longer. longer. I, I honestly have no idea what you're about to talk about, so... I guess just put it on the grill. All right. So we're going to talk about Sunday's Phillies game a little bit later on. 
Aaron Nola pitching beautifully. Absolute masterpiece. He Almost is not like he is not the only Matisse to play in South Philadelphia this year. He is just absolutely painting. <laughs> what do I hear? In the middle of this game, I believe it actually might have been at the seventh inning when it's clear oh, that no. you're that you're watching something just emanating from the far corners. And uh -uh. keep in mind, we have spent a year waiting to get fans back in the stadium. So I have not thought about this in quite some time. But I hear loudly because there's only 11,000 people in the ballpark. So whatever someone says, it's probably going to get on TV. An Eagles cheer. I did not catch that. I, I, I had the game on and then I had it on mute. And then I had it on the radio the last couple innings. I was, I was in the car. That has been a scourge on Philadelphia sports, particularly Phillies games. Yeah, for as long as I can remember. Now, I, I don't think we have to limit that to Philadelphia sports. I think it's just scourge on Philadelphia, and it just goes I don't know. If beyond. you're not at a sporting event and things are dragging and someone does an Eagles chant, that's kind of funny. I, I feel I mean, like we've both been to concerts where someone does it, and it's not quite as funny. But if you think about it, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, Eagles. But when you're at a Phillies game in April, ugh. I mean, concerts, sporting events weddings you know <laughs> when is it not shouted that's true now all right so Aaron Nola's pitching this and I know I've I've heard Phillies players talk about how much they hate it they absolutely hate it they don't really say anything until they're asked but I, I I've heard them and other players from other teams talk about how like it's just it comes with the territory there's nothing you could do about it but they hate it the Eagles Four wins this year. Four, 11, and one. <laughs> the Phillies now, had that in the first week. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> now, I'm not saying the Phillies are going to win 115 games this year and win the World Series. I would love for that to happen. They I don't could. think that's. I, don't I think, think it's that's still mathematically happen. possible, but only barely. So, with that in mind, and as we say this, Mickey Moniak is literally stepping up to the plate right now. He might get a hit or he might not. And. You know, it's just one of those one of those things where I'm just tired of it. I've always been just tired of it, but it's like four wins. Come on. Like, I got it. Like, there was a time in the 90s where it made sense because the Eagles were at least competitive. The Phillies were a small market, their words, not mine, <laughs> team, trying to compete against the Atlanta Braves and the New York Mets for relevancy in the NL East. So I, I get it. You know, it's the vet, it's the same stadium, but you know, this kind of, this, this, this crap happened like when they were in that great run from like 07 to 11, it's just, can we just give it a rest? Like I'm just like four wins, four wins. And I, like, I, I'm shocked. They got four wins. It's literally the game against the saints. Nobody thought they were going to win that. And it turns out, I think we would have preferred that they lose that game and also that tie because, you know, maybe we could have traded down for the eighth pick instead of the 12th pick because, you know, you know, that's where we are. But I digress. I have for the first time ever and not the last time ever on the Boo Birds podcast talked about how much that annoys me because 
cheer for the team that's on the field and don't cheer for the team that just won four games and probably isn't going to be good for another two or three years. I mean, I agree. I, there's nothing really I can say to it. I, I was thinking it, it seems kind of small time to do that at one of your other team's games. Now, some people might be like, oh, we just, you know, we're in Eagles town. We're showing our dedication. You know, the, the record doesn't matter. I don't care if they went 15 and one. I don't care if they won the Super Bowl. All right, I cared that they won the Super Bowl. But and maybe if they win the Super Bowl again, may, maybe then for a year. But I it's just yeah, I, I I don't think I can put it as angrily as you did. I'm not quite as worked up, but that might just be Stockholm syndrome, you know? Like I I, might, I just may be so used to it that it doesn't affect me on an emotional level anymore. But I have absolutely booed people who did an Eagles chant at a Phillies game before. And that felt good. I will say that. I I, I, I got to say, like, as far as fan bases go, we're, uh, I mean, we're, we're fairly self-loathing as a city, and I think it makes us who we are in a lot of ways. But we are not afraid to hate on each other, like, pretty, pretty venomously, you know? Like, <laughs> like we go to a game and, like, hate fans of our own team for what they do. Uh, in a way that I don't know that happens in other cities. I don't, I don't live in other cities, so I don't know. But if a Mets fan says something about the Eagles slash Phillies slash Flyers slash They're season, being beaten, yeah. I mean, hopefully verbally, not not actually. We do not condone that violence <laughs> mostly on the Boobert's podcast. But, you know, we digress. All right, John, you're right. That is very finely aged beef. But it does segue into talking about the Phillies. You mentioned Aaron Nola's work of art on Sunday. Be honest, how long have you been waiting for someone to pitch a game like that so you can make the Matisse comparison? Top of the head. It just it just came right out. Hadn't thought about it before. You know, perhaps there's a third artist working here. I'm not sure. I don't believe you for a second. Maybe, maybe you found it at the bottom of a can of Paps Blue Ribbon Hard Coffee. Probably not. <sighs> Probably not. Aaron Nola, nine innings, two hits, didn't allow a runner past first base on Sunday as the Phillies take the series from the Cardinals. I immediately tweeted about his performance and I tagged you because on this very show a few weeks ago, you did an interview and during that interview and then after that interview while talking with me, you maintained that Aaron Nola was not an ace. And I just thought, wow, what a weird thing. What a dumb thing to say. Okay, whatever. Fine. I didn't realize that that was an actual conversation that people were having in this town. What a stupid, stupid thing to become a thing. Aaron Nola is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Bar none. With, without doubt. He will command... $30 million a year if the Phillies let him get to free agency. They may have to pay him $30 million a year if he doesn't. Of course he's an ace. Now, now you had an argument that was fine, but how is this a widespread thing? How is this not just the work of take artists trying to stir the pot, right? Like, I, I, I just don't get it. How can you watch a guy do that? Oh, he didn't pitch well in September. You know who didn't pitch well in September and October for a long time? Clayton Kershaw. That guy's going in the Hall of Fame literally the second those ballots get back to Cooperstown after he retires. And he should be 
and elected unanimously. I mean, you can't say that he's not a Hall of Famer. Of course. So I don't care that Aaron Nola hasn't pitched well in September. You know what? September hasn't actually mattered to the Phillies. Last year, it kind of did. But did last year matter at all? I say no. And I've said that the whole time. But the idea that Aaron Nola isn't an ace, like it never came into my mind. So I kind of feel like I have to let you off the hook for that stupid, awful take because like, it's even worse that it's a widespread thing to me. So I'm not going to bother you about it anymore. And we both know I'm lying, but <laughs> I'm not going to hold you responsible for that because it, it just blows my mind that anyone, let alone a lot of people, could think that. To the point where his teammates and his manager are answering questions in a post-game press conference after he just embarrassed the St. Louis Cardinals for nine innings. It's just... Uh, now, I'll say this. I actually didn't know this was a widespread thing. Until very recently, myself, I've thought this before, but it you know it wasn't until yesterday, and specifically because of the amount of articles that came out where people talked about, "Oh, it sounds like he's an ace," that I didn't know this was a widespread thing, and I didn't really even want to have this conversation at length because I didn't want to be the guy that bashes Aaron Nola. I love watching him pitch; he's one of my favorite players on the team. I think he's a legit number one starter. I'm glad the Phillies drafted him. I want him to finish his career in Philadelphia. I want them to pay him $30 million a year. But I don't think he's an ace. Now, that being said, I think some of that, this this all comes down to semantics on what the conception of an ace is in baseball. Now, some people just say that that's the number one starter. Your number one starter is the ace. We all know that's not true. Of course not. Because... You know, the Marlins, you know, granted their ace might be former Phillies prospect Sixto <laughs> Sanchez, but, you know, there are only a limited number of aces in baseball. And I don't think he's quite in that tier yet. I think he's in the tier right below that, that, you know, number one guy tier. I don't think he's an ace. And I think it's just one of those things where you'd know it when you see it, not unlike a Hall of Famer. I agree. I think for me, some of it is because the concept of an ace is a little outdated or passe in baseball. It's not what it used to be, to where it used to be John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, you know, Randy Johnson, guys like that, you know, even like you could even get into the Jack Morris tier where you're like, oh, there's a, you know, you know, workhorse in the playoffs, that kind of thing. And you just know when that guy takes the ball in a big game, he's going to get it done and he's going to get it done, uh, you know, for, you know, the type of performance that you talk about forever. And Aaron Nola could be that guy. He's 27. He's entering his baseball prime. He could be an ace. You know, this might be his year where he, in my interpretation of being an ace, takes that step, but he hasn't done that yet. And again, as I mentioned, some of that might be because the concept of an ace is shifting. It's hard to pitch deep into a game when, you know, you get six innings. Like it's not quite the same thing. It's not quite Cole Hamels, you know, taking the mound or, you know, Cliff Lee taking the mound in the playoffs and having that 
cool demeanor, which I think he does have, but then pitching deep into the games. You know, yesterday was his first career complete game shutout of nine innings. And, you know, I, I feel like, and again, dated baseball concept of that's the kind of thing that would have happened a long time ago. Hopefully it is not the last time we see it, but you know, we have to think back, you know, we don't, we, we, we shouldn't hype up one performance like that to be like, Oh, see, you know, this proves that he's an ace because we all thought Vince Velasquez was a stud a couple of years ago slash many years ago slash forever ago, although it's still in the same rebuild when he struck out 16 guys of a triple A Padres team in one game. When you get to something like that, it, you know, it's, you can overhype. And I think that's what Phillies fans have done with Aaron Nola is they're, they've overhyped. He is by far the best pitcher they've developed since fill in the blank, call Hamels. But it's also a very relative concept. Who else have they had? The answer is Zach Eflin, and they didn't even draft Zach, Zach Eflin. So you have that that going, and it's just it's just one of those things. I just don't think he's quite there yet to where he's the no-doubt-about-it ace. Hopefully, I am wrong. Again, I do not want to be this guy. I do not take pleasure in making this argument. I could see the wheels on your head are spinning, and you can't wait to stomp all over this <laughs> argument. I, I have two things. One, remember that Aaron Nola was managed for two years by Gabe Kapler. I'm sorry, was managed for two years by Gabe Kapler's binders and notebooks. Okay? Now, I, I know I sound like an anti-analytics radio show host when I put it that way, but nobody was throwing complete games under Gabe Kapler. I think Zach Eflin may have done it like twice in three starts, but other than that, they were looking for reasons to get you out of the ballgame, not reasons to leave you in. So I, I do not hold any length of outing from 2018 or 19 against Aaron Nola. I am still upset that he was taken out on opening day in Atlanta in 2018. The other thing is that I think this actually goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with LaMarcus Aldridge. If Aaron Nola was doing what he has done in his career – for the Dodgers or for the Yankees or for the Astros or the Red Sox or a team that, you know, had made the playoffs and, and won something, he would be thought of a lot more highly than he would be pitching for the Phillies, where he was honestly the lone bright spot on the team for a couple of years. I, I, I won't speak for you, but I, I, I know personally myself, when I wanted to go to a game, I counted out the rotation and thought, all right, Aaron Nola is going to pitch that day. That's when I want to go. There was a game, I believe you said you attended a game where Aaron Nola and Max Scherzer went head to head. I was there the night before. But you said I was you were also there game. the night before too. <laughs> but you said you were at the game the next night with Nola and Scherzer, and the stadium was mostly empty, and that made me legit sad to hear that. No, I, I have vivid memories of that game for two reasons. One, because I. You know, and that that was the year that was Nola's dominant year. His where he was third in the Cy Young balloting, right. and it was at that point him and Scherzer, Scherzer, and they were really going at it. And you thought this could be the game. And I remember I had a you know sort of a ticket voucher, where, and I couldn't wait to use it for a game just like that because I was thinking 
surely this will be a game that lots of people will want to go to. <laughs> and wrong. The other reason is this game was in late August. Uh-huh. It had to be 95 to 100 degrees. The person, 400% humidity. <laughs> exactly. It, the person in the row in front of us, halfway through the sixth inning, opens a brown paper bag, not unlike the one that had the PBR hard coffee that we're <laughs> struggling to get through right now. And uh, she whips out a tuna fish sandwich. Oh, God. So I believe the smell emanating from the sandwich was uh, similar to my experience at the game that night. Oh, <laughs> I honestly, I thought you were going to say that she um, that she threw up in the bag. And somehow what you said was more disgusting. Oh, goodness gracious. Oh, <laughs> between that and the Ed Vosberg balk game. You were just showing up with bad Phillies game experiences every week here on the pod. Oh, my goodness. Well, except for 2008. Are there any other? <laughs> I, I, I think you're overstating it a little bit, but but good point. Good point. Uh, Aaron Nola is, is a stud. He is a dude. There is no question about it. He hopefully will front this rotation for many years, and I look forward to the day where John has to admit that Aaron Nola has ascended whatever – mountain it is that he has created for him to ascend to, to reach ace level in major league baseball on the other side of the coin center field you mentioned adam hazley taking a leave of absence <laughs> mickey moniak comes up and i i think he was oh for his first 10 maybe one for his first 10 since he came up roman quinn i he's been part of the philly system for what feels like 25 years i believe he's the longest tenured player on the team position player that makes sense both him and vince velasquez on uh, you know their respective sides of the ball which i think most phillies fans you know Would it be makes sense by. <laughs> <laughs> you know but it, it's one of those things you can only be so mad at the player because it's not it's, your fault at some point it's, he it's is just, what he is yeah it's not your fault you know vince velasquez they kept trying to make him the starter he is what he is Roman Why? Quinn. Because he struck out 16 guys in one game. <laughs> one game. Emphasis. <Yeah. laughs> one game. Only one. But yeah, it's, you know, they've both been around forever. And this was Roman Quinn's, like, this was his job. I don't even think it was his job to, to like, to lose this job. Like, this wasn't his job to win. Like, to what you had to do to lose this job. Like, they shifted one of the best. They shifted one of the best middle infield prospects in baseball to center field, in part because of Roman Quinn. They ruined Scott Kingery. Scott Kingery is toiling away at the alternate site. And I think it's very telling that when Hazley left the team, Moniac's the one they called up. They might tell you it's a left-handed bat sort of thing. I think if they had faith in Kingery right now, he would be back with the team. But Roman Quinn has one elite skill it's his speed when his hamstrings aren't turning to mush he can fly but it's the same problem that billy hamilton had you can't fly if you can't get off the launch pad and he just can't get on base enough to to make his speed an asset not to mention that in the field i think he gave up as many home runs as a center fielder as zach wheeler did as a pitcher all year last season 
Adam Hazley has, I, I don't know if from being in close proximity to Roman Quinn, has caught the center fielding yips. So hopefully whenever it is he comes back, he'll have worked his way through that as well. But Mickey Moniak ha- has been a disappointment to this point as the number one overall pick going on five years ago now. But he's got an opportunity to, to seize this job. And he hasn't taken it yet. It's only been a few games, but he's got to be in the lineup almost every day. He's got to have a chance to have some sort of rhythm. And let's wait until he gets those first couple of hits and see if it helps him settle in in some way. But he, he, he's got to take the job because Roman Quinn has shown that he can't be relied on as an everyday player. Adam Hazley, again, we don't know what's going on there, but he was struggling before he left the team. Scott Kingery is not the Scott Kingery that they drafted. He's not the Scott Kingery that they developed and brought up and signed to a six-year major league contract before he ever played in a game. And that that is all on the organization. We now have a new organization in the organization, if that makes sense. But the, the center field problem still exists. And the answer isn't you know bringing in a corner outfielder and shifting Andrew McCutcheon or, God forbid, Bryce Harper into center field. You've got to find a center fielder. And if the Phillies are in contention in June, you got to think that they're going to be scouring the trade market. Unless Mickey Moniak settles in and runs away with it, or or Adam Hazley comes back and he's he's a new player. You know, we're talking about two first round picks and a guy who's been in the organization forever, plus Scott Kingery, and nobody can take this job. It's 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 kind of crazy to think that out of those four guys, they can't even get replacement level production. And yet here we are. Well, two things. One, with the speed prospects that you were talking about, it seems like that's probably the most deceptive tool to evaluate among prospects and that speed guys seem to be the last to develop. And you're seeing it probably the only elite speed guy who's really developed who I kind of knew about in the minors as being like a top overall prospect type of guy is Byron Buxton. And he hasn't even really been that good of a hitter. He's just been a competent hitter who plays elite defense. And what boggles my mind about Roman Quinn is he can't even play elite defense. What boggles my mind about the organization and Roman Quinn. I was going to say, there's only one thing. (laughs) The thing that most bothers me <laughs> is you've got this guy and they tried to do previous regime, that launch angle BS where you're trying to transform every player, Scott Kingring included, into this same type of player. And that is not a thing with human beings. You have a specific skill set. Zach Eflin, the only reason why he is where he is right now in the rotation is because he said, screw that, I'm going to do my thing. And he's, you know, he's found his groove as a major leaguer. He's a legit Roman, third starter. He's a legit third starter, could be a little bit better. He's just, he's that type of good. I don't want to say breakout year because I said that about Nick Pavetta a couple of years ago. <laughs> and now, we all know let how that Let the record out. show I didn't bring it up this time. It took everything I had not to, but I didn't bring it up this time. I own when I'm wrong. But Roman Quinn, he's got this elite speed. He he just needs to get on base. 
He just needs to make contact for that elite speed to be a thing. And he's constantly trying to hit home runs. He's got this power swing. And sometimes it goes out, you know. Kudos to him when it goes out. But honestly, like, someone like him, I don't know if he could hit at the top of an order. But he's the guy that used to hit it at the top of a lineup. He strikes me as an American League number nine hitter. Exactly. To where he gets on base at a less prolific rate than your leadoff hitter. But when he does, he can steal a base. He could he could do a bunt base hit. Remember them? To where he, <laughs> he, he could do that and he could manufacture runs. Kids, that used to be getting them on, getting them over, and getting them in. Small ball. And as I date myself as a 35-year-old who remembers a game from yesteryear. And it's just this, this kind of thing where, like, this guy, like, he has the skills. He has, like, elite skills, and he just can't do it. And I remember this year reading about how they were trying to teach him how to choke up on the bat and make better contact. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I've, I think, one, I've read this before, and two, why did it take this long? Like at some point, if you're the player, I feel like we learned that when we were seven. Like, if you're the player, at some point, whatever they're teaching you, don't you have to go? You know, it's not working. Like, I have an arbitration hearing coming up in a year or two. Like, I'm (laughs) going to need to make some money. Like, you know, granted, it would be great if we turned into Ricky Henderson, but there's a reason why there's only one Ricky Henderson and only one Ricky Henderson ever. And you know who will be the first one to tell you that is Ricky Henderson. Exactly. exactly. And he will say there's only one Ricky Henderson. Uh, Beauty of the third person. But John says that John thinks that Roman Quinn is not a major league center fielder. (laughs) That is a hot take that... (laughs) You know, I know you roasted me for the Aranola take. Do you roast me for the Roman Quinn take? No, but I'm not going to commit either way so that I can roast you later if he goes on a tear. I don't see it happening. (laughs) But, I mean, you're absolutely right about trying to turn guys into things they're not. And you mentioned Kingery. And it's in just about every article that's been written about him over the last year. They took a doubles hitter with great speed whose Twitter or Instagram handle literally is Scotty Jetpacks. And they've taken those elements out of his game, trying to turn him into a home run hitter. And he's a great second baseman that they've tried to turn into a center fielder. And they the, 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 the thing is, before they destroyed him, they paid him. Usually, it's the other way around. They destroy you, and then they don't have to pay you. So kudos to Scott Kingery and his agent, for securing the bag before the team ruined his career. I specifically remember people criticizing him for taking that contract because it was, well, you could really get paid in a few years. Well, who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> I, actually, probably not Scott Kingery. Yeah, but, no. You know. <laughs> I want him to do well. I, I want him to succeed. Not, not in small part because I was very much in favor of keeping him around and, and bringing him up and securing him long-term. So I want, I want to believe that he's a good player, but you know, we're talking about Roman Quinn, you know, how many second chances does a guy get? Scott Kingery is going to need to, to figure something out this year, wherever it is he's playing, whether it's Philadelphia, the alternate site or Lehigh Valley, because I think I, I mentioned it in a previous episode. He could be a trade chip going in the other direction. 
if the Phillies need to get a legit bona fide center fielder in here. And speaking of trades, and you know, it looks like unless Mickey Moniak hits, and I think you're right. I think we have to give him some time because just because he's a performing super well right now doesn't mean anything. He has to perform super well in the minor leagues. That means right. <laughs> a lot more. He'd have been here a lot sooner if he had. Right. But just because he's, you know, pitching an offer, that doesn't mean like if you judged major leaguers on what they did on the first few games, that that would just not work out well long term for you as a talent evaluator. But I did hear one name that I really liked hearing this this name when it was floated about. Uh, Corey Seidman, who uh, works for NBC Sports Philly, floated out Mitch Haniger of the Seattle Mariners. I feel like that is a prime acquisition name to keep an eye on. It's for power. It's for average. Gets on base. Mariners aren't going anywhere this year. They have elite level prospects coming up. One of those guys was on the cover of the Baseball America Prospects Handbook this year. And, I, you know, it, it looks like he could be dangled for, you know, probably not much. So I'm looking forward to seeing if if his name does kind of make its way here. Because I think this is the type of lineup, whereas if you add that one guy at the bottom, that opens so much up for Reese Hoskins, Andrew McCutcheon, Bryce Harper. So somebody like that, I think, could be as huge as the fourth starter, which is currently now Vince Velasquez. <laughs> so we'll see how that works out. And as we know, John, the the Mariners are going to wait just long enough to call up those prospects. So come June, Mitch Hanniger is probably going to be available. I, I didn't realize that tonight was going to get into such a dark place, but here we are. Thankfully, we have our, say it with me now, Paps Blue Ribbon Hard Coffee. I will not. <laughs> That'll do it for us this week on the Bluebirds podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you don't find us on your favorite platform, send us a note. Email us at our website, bluebirdspodcast.com. You can email us directly at bluebirdspodcast at gmail.com. We also have a form on our website. Let us know, and we'll get on your favorite platform, or else the next episode's free. You can also talk to us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Just search for at Boobirds Podcast. And of course, like I mentioned, our website, BoobirdsPodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes, some of the things we've written in the past. I know it's been a little while since we've had any written features, but when John finally caves in and declares Aaron Nola an ace, that's where it's going to be. He's going to write something about it. It's going to be called Mea Culpa, Aaron, I Love You. I think you already love him a little bit anyway. Well, I will close with this. The uh, thing I will not be writing, I will love you about PBR Hard Coffee. <laughs> if anyone out there has any ideas for a future uh, Boo Birds podcast, what are you drinking taste test? Let us know and we'll uh, we'll see if we can get our hands on whatever it is. And uh, maybe we'll we'll crack open a couple on the air. I feel like John and I have gone in opposite directions on this. I've come to to say, okay, that's fine. And, and after starting out thinking, oh, not bad, John is regretting this decision. Let me take one final sip just to double check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I All am. Right, well, I think you're going to survive. And if you do, I'll talk to you next week, John. See you next week. <laughs>